<clears throat> Seems like a long time since we were together. As I mentioned before, the, the tendency in our lives is to, uh, especially after lunch, is to have a, a preponderance of dullness. And there are many, um, even though the general direction of our practice is to accept what comes, and as one of my teachers says, reject what goes, kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, we do make certain, we do try to cultivate certain things in our practice. And, and one of the things we try to cultivate is uh, wise attention, attention that is, um, that is open, that is energetic, uh, that is curious, interested, not unwise attention, attention to get somewhere or become someone, but more the attention to see things the way they are. The process of creating the conditions to, to be able to pay attention, to be energetic, alert, interested, uh, is, um, is ever-changing. The process of trying to, trying to notice what's going on. Sometimes our mind is, is foggy and dull, and sometimes it's, you know, it's full of juice. So on one hand, as I'm about to share a few jokes, you might think, well, that's just a distraction from things the way they are. But in this case, it's what we would call a skillful means, a way to arouse a little bit of energy. <laughs> and even though I could not find the jokes that I thought would be appropriate for this group, I brought some along anyway. And what I want you to do, if, this, if some of these passages tickle your funny bone, I want you to feel the impact of that, how it enlivens your energetic system. Not that that's better than something else, but, we, but more to use that energy for the purpose of our practice. So here's from Ann Landers. It's entitled, Reasons Given for Accidents. The following was published by an insurance company for internal distribution. These reports were submitted when policyholders were asked for a brief statement describing their particular accident. It happened this way. The other car collided with mine without giving any warning of its intentions. I thought my window was down, but found it was up when I put my hand through it. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the place. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. <laughs> I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> the accident occurred when I was attempting to bring my car out of a skid by steering it into another vehicle. <laughs> 
I was driving my car out of the driveway in, a, in the usual matter, manner when it was struck by the other car in the same place it had been struck several times before. <laughs> I was on my way to the doctor's with rear end trouble when my, when my universal joint gave way, causing me to have an accident. One more. As I approached the intersection, a stop sign suddenly appeared in the place where no stop sign had ever appeared before. I was not able to stop in time to avoid the accident. <laughs> so this not only it may help arouse a little energy, but it's a perfect example of one of the three poisons that the Buddha spoke about. Uh, the three poisons being greed in the mind, aversion in the mind, and the third is called delusion or ignorance. These are expressions of delusion. So I want you to forget what happened in the morning, forget what will happen in the afternoon. See if you can step out of time. You're probably measuring how long the day is. This is the way the mind keeps us in a state of tension. So see if you can step out of time and just find your body again. And let your eyes close softly. <clears throat> of course, at any point where you feel as though your energy is, you're unable to stay awake if that happens, feel free to practice with the eyes open but not focused, unfocused. The attention still on the, our practice. <coughs> During this sitting, I will introduce different, just the general uh, field of meditation called states of the heart and states of the mind, mental states, moods, and emotions. But then after the sitting, uh, I will elaborate it a little bit more on, on five of the common uh, mental states that you will, whether you've practiced a day or 50 years, you will have to learn how to navigate if you want to be free. So in the meantime, we'll just acquaint ourselves to the general world of moods, mental states, and states of the heart. But we begin just as we did at the beginning of the day, always putting our mind gently in our body, our body filling our minds. And the way to orient ourselves into our body, once again, since it may still not be a, a natural Abiding, you find the touch points, the rear and the cushion or chair, the touch of the hands, the touch of the lips. The gentle touch of the eyes as they close. And feeling the field of sensations that gives the sense of a, your body's form or shape. Feeling that sense of aliveness or vibration or pulse. Feeling the gentle stillness. Sense that everything has completely let go into the posture. And then within this general stillness we connect with and sustain 
as our support, we connect and sustain our awareness with the movements of our body when it breathes. We connect with our breath. We know very consciously in real time that we're breathing in, we know that we're breathing out. We're finally choosing that area where we most often feel the breath in our body and let that be our home base. For some of you, it will be the chest as it rises and falls, or the belly as it rises and falls. Others, it will be the air passing through the nostrils, or past the upper lip, or passing the back of the throat. It goes in and out. And it can be helpful, as you may have discovered, to accompany this body breath with a soft, transparent whisper in the mind, acknowledging what's happening. Just a quiet in, out with the in-breath, concurrent with the in-breath and the out-breath. Or if you're at the chest or the belly, rising, falling. Or the whole body, breath, expanding, contracting. This mental label, if you find it useful, is simply something to do, use your conceptual mind for to help you stay connected to the actual experience that's happening. It will also allow you to know, by the tone of the label, if you use it, it will allow you to know how you are relating to the experience that's happening. If the tone gets really loud, you may notice that you're starting to feel a bit irritated. If it gets too faint, you may notice that you're drifting You can easily moderate the tone to both promote an uh, an accepting attitude. But again, this mental labeling is just optional. We want most of our attention on the felt experience of the breath. But we want to be clearly comprehending the duration of the in-breath, the duration of the out-breath. And again, if any sounds become stronger than the breath, we simply become aware of hearing. We don't get involved in the content of the sound, but just what it's like to hear and what happens to the sound when it's heard. Everything is changing, arising and vanishing. And then we also want to be available to any strong sensations that become stronger than the sensations of breathing at any part of our body. As I mentioned before, the aching or the burning or the stabbing or the itching or the tingling or the coolness or the warmth or any of the qualities, vibrating, pulsing. If any of the sensations become strong, we let them move to the foreground Let the breath recede to the background. Let ourselves feel the quality of the sensation. Feel whether it's pleasant. Feel whether it's unpleasant. Feel whether it's neutral. But we don't just notice the fact of sensations. We notice what happens to them. We notice their changing nature. We notice whether they get stronger or lessen. 
And when they begin to lessen or vanish or become less compelling or have completely vanished, in behalf of staying anchored to the present, we connect again with our breath, just as we did after a sound passed away. We come back to the breath. And this afternoon, including, including our body in this experience, we open to the different states of mind. The states of mind like calm or agitation, states of the heart like delight or sadness, Emotions like joy, anger, sorrow, grief, other mental states of excitement or ease or balance. Whatever state of mind or heart, what mood or emotion becomes stronger than the breath, we let it move to the foreground. We let the breath recede and we allow ourselves to know that state of mind. Know that mood, know that emotion, be able to say, this is anger. And often with strong emotions, there's a story associated with them. She said, he said, some kind of replay, some kind of fear of some future event. But we, and we graciously notice the story associated with the mood or emotion, but we expand beyond the story of it. And this is where Meditative awareness is most important. We allow ourselves not just to notice the story of anger, but we allow ourselves to feel the physical corollary in our body. How does it feel? What does fear feel like? What does anger feel like? What does grief feel like? What does delight feel like? We feel it in the body and we notice just as we do with other sensations. We notice what happens to them. We notice the quality of pleasant or unpleasant, neutral, and whether they get stronger, stay the same, or vanish. As you can hear from these instructions, when we have strong moods, emotions, states of the heart and mind, we don't try to do anything about them. We don't try to undo them. We simply recognize them as the Dharma, as the truth of this moment. So we recognize them, we accept them, we investigate their nature and their behavior, and we try not to build a whole personal story about them. We just let them be nature unfolding. And just as with sensations and sounds, when the moods or mental states or emotions are no longer predominant or compelling, or have passed away, in behalf of staying anchored to this unfolding present, staying awake, being in the refuge of the Buddha, being awake, we connect again with that which supports us to stay awake, which is always, uh, it is always helpful to anchor our attention in our body, because our body is always present. So we connect with our body again and sink in once again to the the ever-changing flow of the breath. Remembering there is no place to go, there's nothing to do or undo. We can settle back into the moment, just this breath, just this moment. If it feels like too many things to pay attention to, just keep it simple, 
find your body, find your breath. And at any point in the process, you can simply drop the words into your mind, what's happening now? And that will at least help orient you to this present moment. In the meantime, just this breath. Sinking into it, sticking to it, spreading out all around it, not missing any part of the in-breath and the out-breath. Stepping out of time. There is only this breath. No past, no future, no place even called present. Just what there is.
Notice what's happening now. Notice if you're waiting for the bell to ring. If you are, notice what that feeling of waiting is like. How it's felt in your body, what happens to it when it's felt. If there's resistance, notice what that's like. These are states of the mind. Just for your comfort, just so you know you're not alone, the words of the great meditation master Bhante Gunaratna, he puts it like this, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way and you never noticed. Put in slightly more poetic terms, words of Francois Fenelon, I guess, a monk from the 1600s says, as light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So it is not uncommon to think, even though your intention may have been to settle in and feel this progressive increase of peace and harmony, that uh, temporarily it may seem a little noisier. Any of you have that experience? Any of you th think that, wow, I wasn't thinking so much before, but now I'm thinking all the time. <laughs> but in fact, what we, it, there is a little bit of the fact that we're, as we start to pay attention, our 
habits of mind tend to not like that so much, and so they, they go a little crazier. But for the most part, your mind is doing what it always does. You're just noticing it. And you probably noticed in the course of the sitting, uh, how many of you this time were waiting for the bell to ring? Okay. And did any of you, were there any of you who just wanted the experience to be different than the way it was? How many? <laughs> any of you feel any resistance or aversion to how it was? Any of you feel any kind of restlessness? Any of you feel any kind of what's classically called sloth and torpor? <laughs> any of you experience any doubt? So what you all pretty much described is uh, our human condition. <laughs> we have, we have uh, the most common mental states. We have a lot of mental states. This is the third foundation of mindfulness. The first foundation of mindfulness is, the founda is, the, is mindfulness of the body. We talked about that earlier. The second foundation, which I included in the first, is to know whether your physical sensations, whether your, whatever you may be experiencing, noticing what the feeling tone that comes accompanying that physical sensation. So many of you have had lots of sensations today. But each one of those sensations, and it turns out that every kind of experience has these uh, qualities, but turns out that every one of those sensations came, came along with it, came a little valence, a little, a little flavor, a feeling tone. And the, the feeling tones that the Buddha spoke about are the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, neither pleasant or unpleasant. So why is this important? This is called the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling, not mindfulness of emotions. That's a different one. Why would it be important to notice what the feeling tone is accompanying your experience. Well, it turns out that the way we are conditioned is that when a feeling tone of pleasant arises and is not accompanied by mindful attention, where we actually don't know it in real time that it's pleasant, quite unconsciously, the pleasant experience is followed by liking. And the liking, when unnoticed, is followed by, what's that? Grasping. Grasping, wanting. And wanting is followed by becoming. How am I going to get what I want? And before you know it, just springing off a simple little feeling tone, our mind creates a magical world of how, that's in the middle of it, comes in that little dream world of our mind, we create moment by moment the imagined me. Just think about this for a minute. Nothing's really happened except a feeling tone. <laughs> a simple sense experience. Remember, I, right before lunch I said, the whole of your practice, I may not have said it so boldly, but really practice comes down to, reality comes down to six experiences. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. The totality of our life are these six experiences and repeating themselves over and over. 
So the whole drama that plays through a mind is a, is a several steps removed from the basic reality that there's six experiences happening. And our mind yet quite innocently, quite spontaneously spawns a whole universe. And especially in the case of reacting to the pleasant <laughs> sensations, what gets created, what gets sparked by that moment of pleasant that goes unnoticed is this liking, wanting, becoming, and our mind, that pressure of that builds this, generates this whole story of how I, the imagined me in that story, the, how the imagined me is going to get what I want. And it could be as simple as how am I going to last until the end of the sitting? <laughs> that, so it may not be as dramatic as you know, what your, the, the secret to all of your happiness, although for most of us, at that moment, especially if the desire for the bell to ring arises, and you can think about what you're in your life you, th you hold on to as you hold out for, that if this happens, then I'll feel good. And it's usually for most people who, who live a kind of regular work life, it's the weekend. Who may be not as passionate all the time about their work, the weekend becomes associated with happiness. Well, in the case of a sitting, due to both pleasant and unpleasant, the, often the, the bell ringing at the end of the sitting becomes associated. It's the secret to happiness. And sure enough, when that bell rings, there's the ah, the great ah, the merging with the divine, all, all suffering, the cessation, the falling away of all suffering, at least for that moment. And then we get to think, oh yeah, it's getting to the end of things that brings that sense of happiness. When we've missed something very um, important there. We've missed something that it isn't actually the bell or the weekend that gives the sense of relief. It's not unconnected to the sense of relief. But what gives the sense of relief, what is it that gives the sense of relief, really? It's the falling away of that grasping. It's the cessation of grasping. So in that whole interval, while you're waiting for the bell to ring, or waiting for the end of the week, or waiting to the, for the end of the rainbow, waiting for the end of your life, whatever it is. That whole period, we are often captive. We are in a state of suspended happiness, captive in the mental state of desire or resistance. Really flip sides of the same thing. Now what we do in meditation practice is we notice that we may be waiting for the bell. We may, may be waiting for the end of the day, may be waiting for me to stop talking, whatever it is. But we take our attention off of the object of our desires or our resistance or aversion, and instead we pay attention to the state of mind of waiting. That's why I invited you. Notice what it's like to be in a state of waiting. And you will likely notice that if you let yourself feel that state of waiting, once it meets the light of attention, and when I say that, I think of the words of Hafiz where he says, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being 
Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So we keep ourselves captive by not noticing how these mental states are keeping us, uh, keeping us in a state of, of bondage. And yet everything, everything in our life, we are actually encouraged to stay. Our advertising, everything encourages us to stay in a perpetual state of desire. This is the way Sogil Rinpoche put it. He says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture and its brilliant selling of samsara, samsara is that endless wait, that endless wander. I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda, and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. As one Tibetan teacher put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, ambitions, which promise happiness but often lead to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out, to us, holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So as, uh, this is, you can see why we live in this culture that's always looking ahead. And here's what the Dalai Lama said about that. And we see this in the states of mind that, that show up while we're sitting. Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, humans, <laughs> because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So the art of meditation, I call it, as one of my teachers called it, is the practice of non-postponement. I talked about this earlier in the day. That our ment the mental state of wanting or even aversion or ill will constantly creates in our mind the view that I cannot be happy until I get rid of what I don't like, until I get more of what I do like. And that is a trick that our mind plays. That is that samsaric loop that, that creates a feeling that the present moment is just a place that I have to get through on my way to someplace else, when this is all there is. So instead of following the object of the desire, like the bell, or the end of the day, or the end of the weekend, or the, the, end, of my, the end of the rainbow, we, 
graciously acknowledge that we have many desires and that they do give us tremendous pleasure. And they do, at those times, we feel relief. But instead, meditatively, of focusing on the object of desire, we focus on the state of desire itself. And we recognize when it meets that light of attention that it's a changing condition. Often that feeling of waiting for the bell will come, it will go. You will feel the relief. You won't have to wait for it until the bell rings. You'll feel the relief. Why? Not because wanting went away. You'll feel the relief because you were anchored to the unfolding present. You weren't, your mind was not fixated, not focused on what's next, and obsessed with what's next. Does this ring any bells for anybody? So we try to, so this, there are many mental states, but five of them are called hindrances because they are particularly hypnotic in their, in their um, they hinder our sense of where freedom and ease and, and, and well-being can be found. And one is the wanting mind, the desire for sense pleasures. Now it says nothing about sense pleasures being enjoyable, they are. You don't have to give them up. You, have to, you want to be able to enjoy everything in this world, but not be in a constant state of when it's going to be over, when I can get the next one. That actually destroys our ability to really in, enjoy our life. But we want, to, we, we want to tease the difference between the pleasures of the senses and the state of craving, the state of wanting. So we want to notice that in our practice, because it's a frequent visitor. Even, on, uh, even meditators, as is highlighted in this Wall Street Journal cartoon, somebody goes up to the mountain to meet the guru. He says, hey, guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up there on the mountain all day. And the, and the uh, guru says, well, at sunrise I get up and eat a handful of parched corn, start meditating, and then at noon I eat another handful of parched corn and go back to meditating until dark when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, <laughs> french fries, hot dogs, banana splits, pancakes, potato chips, donuts. How many of you have been planning your meal for the end of the day? <laughs> so we, we, have to, we have to see that our minds just do that. We're like wanting machines. But we don't have to be a slave to them. We can actually use them in behalf of of both enjoying the time before dinner, enjoy dinner, and then just as uh, William Blake said, enjoy after dinner, which he, when he said, she, I'll use the feminine, she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy, but she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It's to understand that whatever experience we have, whatever pleasure, um, it comes and goes, and not to spend all your time waiting for it. There's a lot of life missed. We deprive ourselves of real capacity for joy and ease. So the central ones are desire and aversion. They're just the flip sides of desire. Diversion is, I don't like that, I don't want that, I can't be happy until that goes away. And that we, you've probably had certain aversions. We have this phenomenon on even day-longs called the, we have two sides, the, what's called the, the VR, the Vipassana Romance, where somebody in the room triggers a, a pleasant feeling, 
and that pleasant feeling unnoticed starts proliferating a little bit and pretty soon that little pleasant feeling is followed by fantasy, dating, mating, travel, marriage, children, divorce, <laughs> all in the span of a few minutes. And, and this intense view, I can, unless this, this person's the secret to my happiness, unless I finish this, it's, you know, I'll never be happy. And that we also have the reverse side, which is called the VV, or Vipassana Vendetta, where somebody triggers a little bit of an unpleasant feeling based on our conditioning. And that unpleasantness turns into not liking, and not, not liking it turns into aversion. Aversion turns into the fantasy of how I'm going to, how they need to be different, how I'm going to change this whole retreat and how they run it, and, and the temperature, and the... the and our mind can just completely go crazy with aversion. Any of you have any VVs today? Either, thank you. Thank you, an honest person. So in meditation practice, we just, we notice that. We notice how painful it is to be in a state of, of, of uh, perpetual desire. We notice what it's like to be caught in a state of ill will or aversion. But we don't, we don't keep projecting it on the object or on the other. We take responsibility for that mental state. We, we let ourselves feel it. We let it be used on behalf of bringing us back here and reminding us of our love of staying right where we are. Even, go ahead. No, I just, you're, you're making me think of something that I read that I never got. It said samsara is nirvana. And to me, if there's a duality of That's exactly right. Thank you. Oh. That's a got it. That's another poof. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Notice that that moment of noticing, there's, there's, you're not caught, not suffering. Doesn't mean that you don't feel the pain of wanting and the pain of the conditioning of, and, the, and the pressure in the mind that says, that, I've got to get this person out of my life or this, this whatever it is. There's, all, there's endless stories, but but we learn to be able to accommodate that feeling and not keep holding out for, for people to be different or situations to be different that are really many times out of our control. So, so essentially, we feel pain, we go through the emotion, but we really don't have to suffer. We don't have to That's the, the whole point of mindfulness is that the pain that we experience in our life if you're born is inevitable. The suffering part is optional. The suffering part, the mental suffering, has everything to do with not so much the presence of who's there, what's there, but it is in how we relate to it, is how you approach it. And fortunately, the, the quality of mindfulness, that quality in our mind that just clearly comprehends what's happening, it cannot, that quality of mindfulness cannot coexist with wanting things to be different than the way they are. In that moment, there is no pushing away in that moment, there's no holding on. In that moment, there's no confusion. There's just seeing things the way they are. So in that moment, we, we taste a, a little bit of, to use your word, taste a little bit of nirvana. So it may not seem like much when you're just noticing your breathing, but actually you're dropping little drops of, 
of balance and openness and acceptance into, the, into what we call the stream of consciousness. And, and what we're doing here is we're having, hopefully you're filling your mind with less, with more moments of mindfulness, less, and each one of those erases a little bit of that reactivity that makes us feel that we're, always things need to be different. So the first two, desire aversion. Third one, restlessness and agitation. And restlessness and agitation, agitation is often associated with, like I said before, that balance between energy and tranquility, but it's often associated with worry, thoughts of the future, and regret or guilt about the past. So it's often caught up, bound up in the creation of the house of time in our mind. Do you know what I mean by that? The house of, so when we notice that we're feeling worried or restless or agitated, the key is to notice that the story is, there's usually something that we're, that we're worried about or something we're replaying from the past. So you want to anchor your attention here and feel whatever that quality of restlessness and agitation and, and let it bring you, let it, let it bring you back to this vital point which is right here. And often the same with, uh, with sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor often comes, dullness comes from making, trying, making excessive effort to try to get somewhere. That's a lot of why we're exhausted. We don't know how to recharge our batteries. So we're in this constant state of toppling forward. So if you have sleep issues, which most everyone does, um, and then what we do in the morning is we wake up, and I'm as guilty as anybody, and I drink a cup of anxiety, <laughs> and then topple forward to the... <laughs> but we find our own way. We clarify our own mind. And if, if we're really honest with ourselves, and if we truly want to be free, truly want to live in reality, we start to work with that a little bit. We start to try to cultivate the things, as the Buddha suggests, to cultivate what's wholesome and helpful. And then to start to abandon the things that don't help so much. And maintain the things that are helpful. And, and make yourself so rooted in the present that you, it even prevents the un the unhealthy things from even coming into your life. And that's called wise effort. So last but not least, I've, I've gone through just loosely the, the four common mental, first four common mental states that tend to torment us if we don't notice them. Desire, aversion, restlessness, and agitation, sloth and torpor. The fourth, the fifth one, the most, and probably the most undermining of all to our practice and to to anything in our life. And for all of those who are just sampling meditation, you can apply this anywhere, not just about meditation. But this is the mental state, the common mental state of doubt. Doubt is that voice that says, uh, what about this? I can't do this. Uh, everybody else is getting enlightened except me. This is a waste of time. Uh, he doesn't. He looks just as neurotic as the rest of us. <laughs> Buddhism's just an old thing, you know. It's a, what? Who wants to hear some dead teaching? Somebody that lived twenty six hundred years ago. So this is the doubting mind, and it can make a really compelling story. Why? Why? You know, give up the whole search or the whole practice. 
But what we do instead in our practice, because our mind will come up with doubt, it's one of the clever ways that we sometimes avoid being present. We encourage the, what's called the great doubt, which is the, 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 the mind that says, I don't know. This, and this is a really important quality to have. I don't know, but I'm willing to see. I'm willing to discover. And we try to, to abandon or, or not, not get too caught up in what's called skeptical doubt, which is that doubt that says, that's tinged with aversion, that, that, that when we follow it, it just zaps all of our energy. You know, I'm, for example, you, know, you have a, the example I often use, and I've seen little versions of it in my own practice. I'm sitting, I'll just describe what somebody comes into an interview once on a retreat and says, I, I was sitting there and, and I'm, they're encouraged to just describe what they actually noticed in their practice. And often people will, will very quickly not just describe what they notice, but then they'll also describe their conclusions about it. And they'll, they're much farther into the elaboration and they've pretty much left reality and much more into the story. So the person comes in and says, uh, I go, what's happening? I, got, I said, I have this incredible knee pain. And then what happens? So we're sitting, knee pain. Uh, it's really unpleasant. I get really reactive. And then uh, mind says, oh, there's that knee pain again. The last time I tried to meditate, I had knee, knee pain. So we start to build the story. It's the story of me. The last time I had knee pain, oh, and then when I had knee pain that time, the, it was a total disaster. The retreat ended, and I, and I just, you know, I gave up my sitting for about four years, and now I'm back again. You know, I realize that, I realize that every time I try anything, there's some pain that comes up in my body, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm just a failure at everything I do. And not only did it not work that time, it's not going to work this time either. You know, and everybody else looks like Buddha statues, and I'm miserable here. My back hurts. This looks like a bunch of zombies. And, and all this, this land of the living dead, people walking so slow. So what's happening in your practice? Oh, knee pain. <laughs> So this is what is classically called, uh, what the Buddha called papancha, or proliferation. The tendency of the mind to elaborate excessively about a very simple sense experience and can turn it so easy into a story of doubt. And you can probably think of something, vignette, in your own life this week where a simple experience turned into the meaning of your existence, which is not so pretty. <laughs> so instead in the meditation practice, we expand beyond the story of doubt, and we notice what doubt feels like. We let the feeling of doubt bring us back to this vital present. Even doubt. Oh, doubt is like this. Feels a heaviness in the chest, or whatever your version. Any of you having any doubt right now? How does that feel? How does it feel? Where do you feel it in your body? What's that in your hip? Doubt in your hip. Wow. <laughs> so the hip gives rise to the story of doubt? Oh, I see. But the hip and the, the doubt are 
different, right? Yeah. Okay, so it's just to notice all that. So any comments, questions about anything I've said or anything you noticed during this sitting working with mental states? And then we'll do, do a little walk. Please. He's going to bring you a mic. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Uh, is this on? Okay. You're good. The, the, the five states don't, re they seem to be f five for necessity of explanation because the way they seem to be working is that they're all braided together. They're all braided and we call that a multiple hindrance attack. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly and, 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 it's, and um, it's, it's not my knee, it's my neck. Okay. Uh -huh. but, but I was, and, and that's one of the reasons that I came and I'm very new to this yes. uh, and I'm trying it's because of Pain. Yeah. So I was interested in what you said this morning about about pain. Yes. And when I'm, you know, quiet and waiting for the for the bell to ring, you know, I'm I'm very conscious that um, uh, of the the pain in the in the neck. Yes. When during your exposition, when I'm engaged in trying to understand what you're saying, you know, the pain is still there. Because yes, it's, it's there, but you know, I'm distracted. Yes, so so distracted it does happen, yeah. but it's not very reliable because no, the pain no. comes back. Yeah, no, so we have to learn to be able to to be okay when it's there and when it's gone. Yeah, so I'm wondering about that, how this to to deal with this desire thing when. Uh, or, or grasping for, for the for the end of pain, uh, you know what would immediately became okay. Then the bell rings. He's going to he's going to talk. <laughs> okay, yeah. so so I'm going to be relieved of the. You know. I, I, yes, I and but that but that does create a that creates a conditional. Uh, uh, it creates the foundation for conditional happiness. You're happy when when the bell has rung. You're unhappy when it's not. So that kind of happiness the Buddha called the happiness that depends on conditions being the way we want them or the way just getting what we want. He called that happiness, which is no doubt that you experience the pleasure when the bell rings and maybe in being able to focus on something other than your pain. But he called that the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage, because it keeps us in a state of de continually depending on conditions needing to be the way we want them in order to find relief. So instead, what you would want to do in the practice is notice the pain, notice the desire for the pain to go away, to, to, to include both of those. And, and you'll see that if you notice that state of desire, that often the, the desire for the pain to go away exacerbates the pain. It makes it even more intense. So you can literally shift your attention to the state of desire itself. Often, if you navigate that for a little bit, explore that, it's a, it's a form of moving, you're, you're not actually focusing on the pain in that moment. But often when you go back to the pain, after you've in some ways accommodated that state of desire, 
when you go back to the pain, often it's not as intense. It's not because you had distracted yourself, it's because the mental state of desire is not locking it in place. So the key experiment that we're trying to, you, don't, you shouldn't just adopt this as a, blue, uh, as a view, but the key experiment, the, the question is, is it true what they say that the cure for pain, not the end of pain, but the cure for, for suffering, the cure for pain, as Rumi puts it, the cure for pain is in the pain. It's opening to it. It's exploring it. So that's the direction, is turning toward it, seeing if we can find a, an, a place where we can have pain, but our mind can be quite balanced and at ease. Because it is inevitable that we will face pains that, we, that don't go away, just some of, like you're describing. So can we, can we limit the amount of suffering that we add to that by our reactivity? And two of the ways that we add reactivity is is the state of desire and the state of aversion or fear. So that's why we want to include that. In fact, if you did nothing else in your practice but just, and this is, I haven't mentioned it yet because it's, it's kind of subtle, but if you just, all through the day in your life, you just noticed not, just nothing but what's the attitude in the mind right now? Is it trying to get somewhere? Is it resisting something? Or am I building a story about myself? Is it, or am I just confused? If you did nothing but just pay attention to the attitude of mind, which is really another way of paying attention to the state of the mind, you're actually paying attention at that time to, uh, to see those things is the difference between, uh, you could say the difference between bondage and freedom. What really brings the bondage in our life is not so much the external experience or even the internal experience of pain, but it's the way that we relate to it. It's the attitude of mind. So even as you're sitting here and you're observing your breath, if you're, what's the attitude of the mind that's noticing right now? Am I open to this experience of breath or is there resistance to the breath? Am I paying attention to the breath in order for something to happen? If there's resistance or trying to make something happen, it's actually going to be the cause of tension. If I'm open to the breath, so it, it doesn't even matter what the experience is, the attitude is really make, is the difference maker. I think that's enough words for right now. I want you to forget everything that you've heard. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a little bit warm to, um, I'm trying to figure out how we can do a walking practice. Um, you have any ideas, Katie? No, yeah, I think maybe we'll just do a, a bit of a, um, just a little stretch in the room and then we'll sit again. And we'll do this for, we'll have a five minute stretch period and you can either do it on your own or just maybe all together we'll do a few moments of standing. Yeah, if, if, Katie, if there's any way to cool the room off, that would be cool. <laughs> no pun intended. Okay, as you're standing here, you might, might just consider mindfully raising your arms, catching every sensation as the arms raise, 
and then catching every sensation as the arms begin to fall. And then for the next couple minutes, let's just do at our own pace, mindful raising of our arms, not missing any part of the experience, and mindful lowering our arms. Raising of our arms, lowering of our arms. Feel free to close your eyes or leave them open. When your attention drifts into fantasy, just when you come, come back, appreciate that you're present again. Come back to the gentle movements of your arms. Let your knees be soft. Just to help arouse a little energy, you might at some point let your arms drop to the, to the sides, if you're ready. Bend your knees a little bit, and then start to bounce a little bit, not letting your heels drop all the way to the floor. And just with each little bounce, let everything go. A little bit of type of qigong both relaxing, loosening, energizing. Let the heels be a little off the... know how many of you you can do whatever your version of letting your body turn don't force it too much let it be a practice of mindfulness where you feel every part of it yes
Okay, feel free to use the restrooms for a few moments, get a drink of water, and then we'll come back and sit. Please be mindful in the transition. Thank you for staying with the day. I know it's hot. Appreciate you being here. Anybody wants to come up and check in for a couple minutes as we're in this transition, please feel free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.